Big stories, big guests, the big picture. Afternoons with Rob Breckenridge. Weekdays 1230 to 3, 770 CHQR. I want to revisit a story that, that certainly was making headlines last summer as it appeared likely that the Taliban were going to retake Afghanistan. There was a real urgency in trying to to get people out of Afghanistan who would have found themselves in very grave danger in that scenario. Those who had helped uh, the NATO mission, uh, including the Canadian mission, obviously, in Afghanistan. There were those brave Afghans who went out of the way to to provide assistance to the Canadian mission, both in terms of uh, you know translation and all kinds of other services. Certainly for a lot of veterans themselves, you know, they felt a sense of obligation that these are people that they had worked side by side with in Afghanistan who were in danger, in, in, in the worst kind of danger. So it was actually a lot of these veterans organizations that were doing the work that, that honestly the Canadian government should have been doing. There was all kinds of pressure, as you may recall, in the Trudeau government uh, to do more, to, to speed up the process. And for whatever reason, the government really dragged its feet finally acting in the very late stages prior to the Taliban uh, taking over Afghanistan once again. And obviously, once that happened, any kind of rescue became that much more difficult. Now, some of these groups have still been trying to do this important work, but unfortunately, have run into all kinds of of red tape and roadblocks in our nation's capital. Uh, The Veterans Transition Network, uh, which is doing all kinds, have been doing all kinds of important work, Rescued more than 2,000 Afghans since August of last year, saying they, they've, they've done all they can, that their staff are burnt out, and they're just not getting the necessary support from the federal government. Uh, joining us to talk more about uh, the situation, very pleased to welcome to the program here this afternoon, Oliver Thorne, uh, Executive Director of the group VTN Canada, Veterans Transition Network, vtncanada.org is their website. Oliver, thank you so much for joining us here today. Welcome to the program. Yeah. Hey, Rob. Thank you very much for having me. Can you give us a bit more of the background then on, on how and why your group got so actively in, involved in this in the first place? Yeah, you know, that it, it's a great question because it is um, so far removed from the work that we typically do. You know, our organization has been around for almost 10 years. Um, and, you know, our entire focus really for the past nine years has been the delivery of counseling and transition programs for Canadian Forces veterans across Canada. Uh, and really, that's been, you know, kind of our singular purpose. Um, but last summer, we were approached by a group of veterans, uh, volunteers, and organizations that were collectively working to prepare for the U.S. withdrawal from Afghanistan and, and the resulting evacuation that was going to be necessary for uh, interpreters and locally employed civilians who worked with our Canadian forces. Um, and what they needed was uh, an organization that could act as the fundraising and the financial arm to support those efforts. Um, and they asked us to come on board. And, you know, the, uh, the reason that we, we chose to become involved, because this is outside of our typical activities, far outside, is we saw just how unanimous Canadian veterans were, um, you know, in trying to support and calling on the government for support of their interpreter colleagues. Um, the work that they've done over the past eight months has been absolutely incredible, and it was that unanimous support and voice that really um, is why we became engaged in the project. So what role then did your organization take? 
Yeah, so it started out, our kind of first goal really was to, to raise about 500000 to support um, the internal movement of people who are coming from cities around Afghanistan uh, into Kabul in preparation for evacuation flights. Um, so the initial goal was a 30-day campaign to support those efforts. Um, then, as I'm sure you saw, over the course of August, uh, Afghanistan fell entirely to the Taliban much faster than anyone anticipated. So all of our efforts were kicked into high gear. Um, so what started as a 30-day uh, campaign to, to raise funds ended in an eight-month campaign and an operational effort um, to essentially fund a network of safe houses that at its peak um, sheltered 1,700 people. Um, we, in the early days of the evacuation, assisted uh, funded efforts and assisted efforts to help people uh, get access to the airport during the evacuation airlift. Um, and then after the government airlift ended, um, our group uh, ran its own evacuation convoys from Afghanistan into Pakistan. Um, and in total, um, over those eight months, we, we've supported just over 2,000 people uh, in getting out of the country. Right. And you think about how dangerous it is with the Taliban back in control of the country, the Taliban actively hunting down uh, these, mm-hmm. these people that they believe to be traitors and, and apostates. So having to, to be so careful in all of this, finding those evacuation routes, just talk about what a challenge that all is. Absolutely. And it was deeply challenging, deeply stressful um, work for, for us and for everybody else who was engaged, you know, particularly in uh, August and September, but throughout the throughout the effort, we're you know dealing with very short timelines, with information that's constantly changing, a landscape that's constantly changing. So it, it's been um, a massive effort by everyone involved to try and support these Afghan interpreters. Um, and again, you know, we're we're immensely proud to have been a part of that effort and to see just the selflessness and the determination of Canadian veterans and the Canadian public. Um, but it has absolutely been a challenge. So what have you encountered in terms of, you know, federal policy? And because, you know, certainly the, the goal, the objective is, is to get folks out of Afghanistan to get them here. But that means navigating, you know, the whole immigration process. And mm-hmm. how challenging has that side of it been? That is, uh, you know, has been and still remains uh, the toughest nut to crack. And particularly at this moment, um, you know, of this campaign, um, you know, in, in particular, one of the big challenges is that, um, you know, Canada no longer has any form of consular services in Afghanistan um, and, and really hasn't since August of last year. So in order for somebody to be approved to come to Canada, they need to do what's called biometric processing, which is, you know, the verification of their identity through fingerprints, retinal scan, things like that. Because there is no consular presence in Afghanistan, that means they have to go to a third country to do this. So then what that introduces is a whole host of other administrative challenges, securing visas, passports, all of that documentation, all of the administration and wait time that comes with it is now placed as a burden on the shoulders of the Afghans who are applying to this program. Um, And, you know, certainly at this point in the campaign as well, we've come to the realization that that is where the challenge exists for the majority of the applicants. Um, And... You know, although we are beginning to wind down our efforts, we are going to still continue to support on that front as much as we can over the coming months. Um, but this is now transitioning from an emergency evacuation effort 
what will probably be a years-long migration effort that's going to take some really dedicated professionals to unstick that logjam. So what, what finally convinced you that, that maybe it was time for your organization to take a, a bit of a step back here? You know, the, the piece that I just mentioned really is kind of at the heart of the decision. Um, you know, when we started this evacuation effort, we were really, um, you know, seeking and accepting donations from the Canadian public and organizations to support things like safe houses, food, medical care, uh, you know, road convoys, evacuation efforts, all of it within Afghanistan. Um, certainly there are still folks that we can help who are, you know, move ready and we will continue to do that. Um, but both the challenge of the logistics, um, the paperwork required, again, that's where the challenge exists for most people. Um, and, and it's not a case anymore of how many buses we can book, how many convoys we can organize or fund. You know, Oliver, you talk about some of the, you know, the, the red tape that you're dealing with and, and trying to navigate, uh, you know, the, the, uh, the, the federal system. I mean, to what mm-hmm. extent is this to be expected? I mean, you know, Ottawa is kind of infamous for, for red tape, but to what extent is this also sort of a consequence of a, a deliberate policy choice here? You know, really tough to say, Rob, you know, not being able to see inside the black box, you know, as as it were, and understand exactly what's informing the decision. Um, One thing that's for certain is that, you know, over the last number of months, we have been in continual contact with some really hardworking and dedicated uh, staff at Immigrations, Refugees, Citizenship, and Global Affairs Canada. Um, And we know that they're working overtime to try and solve this problem. Um, I feel that, uh, you know, to some degree, their hands are tied in the way that our hands are tied by government policy that seems to be just quite risk averse, but at the direct detriment of of the people that we're trying to help. Um, And, you know, we've seen, for example, uh, with Ukraine, we've seen some biometric verification requirements being waived for uh, people above a certain age or below a certain age. We haven't seen that for Afghanistan, but we know certainly if that policy were to be extended to Afghan applicants, that would make the process much, much easier. So we're hopeful that perhaps some of these policies uh, will materialize, um, but as of yet, it still is a big challenge. And even when it comes to, you know, the money that you were, were able to raise, as I understand it, there were still a lot of restrictions uh, that, that affected how that money could be spent. So how, how did that impact the work you were doing? Absolutely. You know, that, that's been a big challenge as well. And even more so, it, it's another area um, of the kind of administrative burden of this campaign that is even kind of tightening as we speak. Um, obviously, uh, you know, the, the Taliban is an internationally sanctioned terrorist organization. Uh, there are strict laws against directly or indirectly funding uh, terrorist organizations. So that right. then affects how we can deploy the funds, what they can be used for. Um, we've just worked really diligently to work with, you know, trusted partners um, to have all the proper paperwork in place to, to make sure that, um, you know, we're, we're not falling into any of those traps. But uh, it certainly is very challenging, and, and the funding is uh, more restrictive if it's coming from the government.
So as we move forward, and as you said earlier, I mean, you, you, this was far longer than, you know, than, than you'd originally anticipated. You know, this has mm-hmm. really burnt out a lot of your staff in, in trying to juggle everything you do as an organization and to focus on this. But what kind of a reaction has there been, you know, from, from those within your organization, those who had reached out to your organization in, in the first place looking for, you know, a role here? Mm-hmm. Yeah, you know, I mean, we're, we're, we're living it right now. There's been a, a tremendous response to this message. And, and I do want to stress, you know, to anybody listening that, um, you know, we're certainly still going to remain engaged for a number of months. Um, we are closing down our public fundraising campaign soon, but we are still going to be supporting migration, supporting uh, movement where we can and, and advocacy for, you know, these Afghans that supported the Canadian government. Um, our staff, our team, our network of veterans, everybody that we've worked with, is deeply, deeply invested in this campaign. Um, the unfortunate reality is that we're a small team, um, and this has gone from what was supposed to be a 30-day effort to an eight-month, you know, overtime haul. Um, and, and so we really do need to start returning some of our attention back to our work here at home with Canadian veterans because our programs are still very much needed. Um, but we're not going away just yet. we still got some work to do. We'll leave it there. Much more is mentioned, vtncanada.org. Oliver, thank you so much for joining us here today. Really appreciate this. Thanks for having us, Rob. Really appreciate it. All the best. Take care. Uh, There you go. That's uh, Oliver Thorne. He's executive director with the group uh, Veterans Transition Network, vtncanada, vtncanada.org. So kind of feeling like they've gone as far as they can with this and and some of that frustration in terms of and a lack of support from from the federal government here. So hopefully that, you know, there's still an ability, you know, if the federal government's willing to make this a priority, that we can still get people out of there. But it's pretty remarkable to think what grassroots organizations were able to do both before August of last year, but especially after. So, So kudos to this organization and everything they did. And they did it because it mattered to veterans, right? It wasn't the kind of thing they'd done before. But just seeing how important this was to those who had served in Afghanistan, you know, they made it a priority and they made a real difference. Let's start with the story, though, that we've been talking about, Canadians have been talking about for a number of months now. Inflation, the cost of living. Uh, For March, the consumer price index rose 6.7% year over year, an inflation rate not seen since January of 1991, the year that the or the month that the GST took effect. Otherwise, you got to go all the way back to 1983 to find inflation running this hot. 6.7% was above the expectation for March. So clearly, this is not going away. Clearly, this is not even yet slowing down. Although the Bank of Canada has taken some initial steps to try to rein in inflation, I think we can expect them to do more, to be even more aggressive. And that's going to mean subsequent interest rate hikes above and beyond what the bank has already done. So do interest rates need to go even higher? What does that mean for the economy? Can the Bank of Canada be confident that the Canadian economy is going to remain strong? Yesterday, the International Monetary Fund revised downwards its global growth forecast. But otherwise, uh, the expectation still is that Canada's economy is going to grow this year and next. Well, joining us uh, for his assessment uh, of where we're at, what kind of a response might be necessary, very pleased to welcome to the program here this afternoon, Dr. Jack Mintz, President Fellow at the School of Public Policy at the University of Calgary. Dr. Mintz, good to have you with us here. Welcome to the program. 
That's my pleasure, Rob. Well, first of all, your initial impression, 6.7%, maybe higher than, than was expected for March. What was your reaction? Oh, actually, I thought it would be something like 6.7%. Of yeah. course, uh, trying to forecast these things exactly, it's always a bit of a mugs game, but uh, I'm not right. surprised uh, that it's uh, this high. You know, we've had, you just need to go to the grocery store <laughs> and look at the, yep. uh, you know, the gas prices right now. Uh, and uh, you can see that, um, you know, you know, the prices are even higher than before uh, in March. So does that suggest that we're not yet doing enough, whether it be on the monetary policy side or even the fiscal policy side, to get a handle on this? Well, first of all, uh, on the monetary policy side, uh, the Bank of Canada is now taking some actions uh, uh, for the first time, really. uh, And they just happened last week, where they raised the uh, interest rate, uh, the bank rate, by half a point. And uh, they have now made it very clear they're no longer uh, buying government bonds. And in fact, they're going to start selling off uh, some of their portfolio. Uh, and so the um, monetary policy is tightening. And uh, it takes time, however, for it to uh, filter through the economy. And so we really shouldn't expect anything, at least for six to um, six months to maybe possibly a year before we start seeing uh, the impact of uh, higher interest rates on, uh, on, 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 on inflation in general. I mean, the interest rates, yeah. Yeah, I was going to say, as far as fiscal policy goes, well, uh, the government certainly ran up big deficits, in fact, so large during the pandemic that households actually had more income during a recession than less income because of all those government transfers. And so we're now paying the price through an inflation tax. Mm -hmm. And uh, however, at least in the last budget, the government did bring down its deficit, but it still ended up spending about 40% of the revenues that were pouring into the coffers uh, due to inflation so and, and growth in the economy. So so we are seeing, you know, we, we are in a better fiscal uh, policy sense in the sense that it's not as big a deficit uh, as before, but uh, still uh, there's a bit of an accelerator still still on the economy through fiscal policy. And it's going to raise the cost, those interest rates going up. I mean, that's going to raise the cost of, of sustaining all of that debt. Well, yes. In fact, uh, it depends on how much government debt is, is rolled over. In fact, government debt is uh, fairly short-term in structure. There's, you know, there are some long-term debt the, the government of Canada has. Uh, however, um, uh, there's a significant portion that's very short-term and will be turning over. Uh, in, including uh, bonds that are held by the Bank of Canada. And and so that debt has to be financed. Uh, and we're talking about, uh, you know, hundreds, I, I, I think if I recall, it's something like $400 million in debt this year, uh, which in, including the Bank of Canada debt uh, that would be uh, sold off this year. And, and so that means that uh, that will put some pressure on, on interest rates uh, as, uh, as the government... Um, has to find other people to hold hold that debt. So, when, when, I mean, interest rates have risen, but obviously, you know, when you look historically, these are still incredibly low interest rates that, that the Bank of Canada has. Is there is there almost a need to to go even further here? Are we going to see? Do we need to see uh, interest rate hikes still? Oh, I think you're going to see uh, several interest rate hikes uh, over this coming year in 2022. Uh, this is only the start um, that the bank account has undertaken. And you are right. I mean, the bank rate is still quite low. Even in, I was looking at mortgage rates, uh, um, even after last week, um, you know, five-year closed mortgage rate was around 
3.8% uh, of, of the big banks. Um, you know, if we go back to uh, the 1950s when there was a cap in mortgage rates, that cap was 6%. And I remember my first mortgage rate uh, going back to the, you know, to the early uh, 1980s, it was, it was getting close to 10% uh, or even 11% if I recall. So, so uh, you know, <laughs> we're, we, we still have much lower uh, interest rates. Uh, and in fact, those interest rates are well below inflation, which means that the real rate, in, in other words, once you take into account the loss of uh, purchasing power of your money as, you know, as you lend it and you get paid back at, uh, in a year's time, um, we, we that uh, the real interest rate actually is now still negative, uh, which is still means that uh, there's still that uh, there's still a, a kick given to the economy in, in, in growth, uh, in that businesses actually are are borrowing money at an interest rate which is below uh, the in, uh, the inflation rate and the growth in their revenues, and so that that ends up um, causing um, causing them to in, invest more at least in principle. What's your assessment then of the strength of the Canadian economy? Can it sustain all of this? So, you know, should the Bank of Canada be worried about an economic slowdown? Well, this is a big question, um, and it, and there are different types of of uh, reactions to uh, the situation we now have. Um, if you go back to the nineteen nineties, you know, you had the you had the recession in the early nineteen nineties, uh, uh, in part because interest rates went really up as the Bank of Canada was uh, tightening monetary policy quite a bit uh, to bring down inflation. Um, that did cause a, um, or help con uh, cause a, a major recession in the, in the early 90s. Mm -hmm. uh, but once we got over that, unemployment came down, but also inflation came down during that period. Uh, and uh, I think the hope is that uh, we're going to have this sort of situation right now where interest rates may go up, it will slow down the economy, but uh, because there's so many people, uh, businesses with uh, labor shortages, uh, and, you know, the hope is that uh, you know that this won't lead to more unemployment. We'll be able to bring down the interest rate, uh, but still be able to maintain reasonable growth. Uh, it, it won't be six percent, but it might be two percent or, uh, or or two and a half percent, which is kind of what Canada has been growing at uh, generally over the past number of years. So, but that won't be a recession, and so. So that would be the soft landing, and, and one which uh, I think the Bank of Canada is going to try to uh, aim for. Uh, on the other hand, if it's like the 1970s uh, or 80s, where uh, the bank worried about recession, let's say, you know, uh, after raising interest rates, start seeing the economy is not doing well, they start pulling back, but then that just pushes up interest rates more uh, or inflation more. And and then and then uh, you still have uh, wars going on in Europe and right. lockdowns happening in China and things like that, and, and so your 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 potential of the economy or or the supply in the economy is still being held back, and so uh, you end up getting both unemployment and inflation at the same time, or what we call stagflation, and that's right. what happened in the 1970s with the oil price shocks uh, that happened at that time. You know, the question of growth and, and even, you know, further to that, Canada's productivity, and, and you've talked a lot about that, written a lot about that in, in recent years. There was some criticism of the recent budget for really overlooking this aspect uh, of, you know, where, where we're headed here. I mean, do we need more of a focus on long-term growth, increasing uh, productivity? How does that fit in here? Well, I think we do need to have much more focus on, on growth, and the budget did try to 
deal with a couple of things, but I don't think it's uh, it's not entirely clear that the mechanisms that they're trying to improve productivity are going to work very well. Uh, in fact, you know, they're just creating another growth fund. We'll see how well that fund does. And, you know, the Canada Infrastructure Bank wasn't exactly a, a tremendous success. It's not entirely clear that this this uh, fund that's now being created, uh, you know, to try to, uh, which would require private money to be matched, is going to have any more success in, in creating uh, uh, more um, more capital investment uh, than, than other uh, tools can. Uh, I think really what we need if we want to get more investment is that we really have to look at our regulatory system to reduce regulations, uh, and we're going to have to uh, we're going to have to do a lot more uh, in terms of tax policy to try to encourage uh, more growth as well. Uh, in fact, we are hitting actually the productive parts of the economy with much higher taxes. And, and I'm not sure that's actually the way, that, the best way of trying to create more supply and, and trying to grow the economy. And so I think we need a much more balanced approach than, than we're doing now. Uh, and so that might include kind of a big bang corporate tax reform. That might also include doing something on the personal tax side where we really want to encourage entrepreneurs to to invest uh, in Canada and, and, and not to invest elsewhere. So. I think that's uh, those are going to be challenges that we still face, and, and the government doesn't have an answer for that yet. We'll leave it there. Dr. Mintz, appreciate the insight. As always, thanks so much for joining us here today. My pleasure. Thank you. All the best. Uh, Jack Mintz, President's Fellow of the School of Public Policy, University of Calgary. His thoughts on where we're at with inflation, what the Bank of Canada is likely to do to respond, and how we assess the strength of the, the Canadian economy. And that's something, obviously, the bank needs to take into consideration. Can the economy sustain you know, subsequent interest rate hikes? I think they're coming. Off the top of this hour, though, I want to take a closer look at where things are headed in Canadian politics. At a time when the Conservatives are going through a leadership race and figuring out, I guess, what their identity is, you know, we're seeing the the governing Liberals being pulled further to the left as a result of this uh, agreement they've reached with the NDP. And combining that with the possibility of the Conservatives taking more of a hard right turn, where does that leave the centre? And so it's, it's something that, that our next guest and, and the group that he's uh, founded are trying to call attention to, that it's important that the center still have a voice, and it's important that conservatives not ignore the center. In fact, there could be some opportunities there, you know, created by uh, the liberals' shift to the left. Now, Rick Peterson is a uh, former conservative leadership candidate. Uh, contested the leadership in 2017 and again in 2020. He's the founder of a new group called Center Ice Conservatives. And he joins us on the line here this afternoon. Rick, good to have you with us here. Welcome to the program. Hi, Rob. Thanks for having me on board. Well, what do you make of this this moment we're at in Canadian politics where, you know, the Liberals certainly, it seems, have taken a turn to the left. The, the Conservatives may indeed take a turn to the right. What, what does it all mean for our politics? I think you really uh, nailed it, Rob, in your intro remarks. There is a large group uh, in the middle who I qualify as mainstream Canadians who would be not necessarily as involved in the day-to-day of party politics or leadership races, but who are trying to find out who, who, speaks, for, who speaks for them in the middle, who speaks for people who are fiscally conservative, who are concerned about the... Uh, uh, the federal budget and spending and the debt, but at the same time are relatively open and progressive in terms of social issues. So it it would seem, Rob, as you clearly outlined, that the Liberal Party moving quite a bit to the left and exacerbated or actually uh, 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 tied down with the 
supply and confidence agreement with the NDP. They seem to have vacated that middle. Uh, the conservative leadership race is actually fascinating now because we do have uh, centrist conservatives and we also have others who are social uh, conservatives and some libertarians all vying for support too. So mm-hmm. that center is where power lies in Canada. That center is where the 40 to 45 swing ridings in every election robber uh, decided across Canada. And that center doesn't really seem to have a strong voice in the Conservative Party at some point, but really general mainstream people. And all we're trying to do is create a platform that's going to highlight ideas and people and our launch is next Wednesday, so you'll see some of the things that we're going to do. Well, and I mean, one way of being that voice might have been to, and, and you've been through it before, as mentioned, to, to run as a candidate, to be that voice in a more formal sense as, as a, a leadership contestant uh, in the Conservative Party. But why, why do you see this vehicle as more potentially productive? We're nonpartisan in the sense that we're not going to take a stake behind any one candidate, Rob. Mm-hmm. And uh, our voice is to be highlighting what all the different camps are uh, highlighting that we think is important. And again, our audience is mainstream Canadians who aren't necessarily involved in day-to-day partisan politics. And to say, here are issues, here are people in the middle. And something that started uh, over a coffee, Rob, early March, we've now got 50, 60 people on board helping us launch this thing. We're all volunteers and a good section of them are federal liberals who are interested in what we're doing and interested in where we're going. So when we're getting federal liberals and federal conservatives working together, we know we've got something going here that's going to have some legs. It's interesting. I mean, you talk about mainstream, nonpartisan Canadians. It feels like leadership races by design are, are basically designed to ignore them, that, you know, it's about winning over uh, you know, more hardcore partisans. And once you win the leadership race, then you can shift your attention uh, to more middle-of-the-road nonpartisan voters. Is, is that part of, you know, one of the, the flaws of our system? I think you're right on the money, Rob. Leadership races are, are very partisan by nature, and it's a membership race. Yeah. A leadership race is a membership race. I, I laugh when I see polls coming out saying, you know, Canadians think that such and such a candidate would be the best leader. Well, what really counts is who signs up for a membership, who pays $15, and who is going to actually cast their vote in September. So the uh, motivated base of any political party is usually identified with certain policies, certain approach to certain issues, and every leadership candidate out there is going to do the best that they can to attract new members, um, appeal to a certain base, but to become the Prime Minister of Canada you need to attract the center. And that's where the Conservatives have failed the last three elections and where we have in this leadership race, we have some candidates, Rob, who really seem to be approaching the centrist approach like front and center, and whether it's Mr. Charest or or, uh, Patrick Brown and uh, some of the things that Scott Aitchison is saying or Leona Aslev, and there's one candidate, I don't know whether he's going to make the cutoff or not, Bobby Knight out of... uh, out of uh, Bobby Singh, rather out of uh, out of Toronto, mm-hmm. um, there's some interesting approaches that are really centrist approaches. So it'll be interesting to see where we go on this. What do you make of the last few elections, or even the last two in particular? Because, as you say, the Conservatives came up short. Now, I think there are some in the Conservative Party that that want to see a pull to the right who say, "Look, we tried the centrist approach; that didn't work." But is is that an accurate diagnosis of what happened? You know, just in here in Edmonton, look at uh, what happened in Edmonton Centre, James Cumming. Right? Look what happened in Edmund Griesbeck with uh, Kerry Diod. I mean, these were ridings that were conservative that went, um, Kerry's riding, Griesbeck went NDP. 
Mm-hmm. James Cumming uh, went liberal. It was very close. But that riding wasn't determined by more or less conservative votes going to the right. These were centrist voters, right? And if you look at the results, uh, of course, in Calgary, you guys have an example as well, too. But the swing ridings, Rob, the 40 to 45 swing ridings in the 905 and some of the major centers, uh, Vancouver, Granville, for example, those are very centrist, pragmatic voters who are just looking for somebody that's got an optimistic future, but at the same time realizes that a lot of the battles that are fought in a leadership campaign are basically issues that are behind us, right? Mm-hmm. And that's the whole trick, is to win the leadership, but to appeal to a broader network of people. And our goal at Centerized Conservatives is just to be a voice and a platform where those issues are raised. I mean, obviously, the trick is to, to, to appeal to both, to keep conservatives happy, but to be able to appeal to the middle. And I think there's a concern that if conservatives are too centrist, you're, you're vulnerable on the right flank, you know, that, that the People's Party, for example, could peel off some of those conservative voters. What about that side of things? I, I would flip that around, Rob, and I'd say let's have a very strong, bold, unabashedly centrist stance on issues like climate change, right? Climate change is real. Any party that can't bring that across and say that, Climate change is real, but that doesn't stop us from supporting our energy sector. And here in Alberta, I mean, we are the ESG, or the Green Energy Transition Leader in Canada. Let's unabashedly promote that and at the same time realize, hey, climate change is real. It's affecting us all. If you look at other elements like, you know, balanced budgets, here we have the liberals that are coming back to pre-pandemic debt levels higher than where the pandemic came. And as you knock on doors and if you help a riding candidate, you'll find out that one of the biggest things is people are concerned about the debt for their kids. Get past the pandemic. It's my kids. It's the debt. Yes, it is housing. It is other things as well, too. But those are bread and butter issues, Rob, in the center. And any candidate or any leader of any party that unabashedly says, these are my values, I am in the center, I understand and the need to have voices from all over, uh, the spectrum, but it is a strong, bold, centrist voice which will carry the day and will result in somebody who appeals to the center who will be the next Prime Minister of Canada. Well, look, and I mean, you're from Alberta, you've been a strong voice for the energy sector, but I know a lot of Albertans worry that, you know, where does that fit in? And, and it feels as though, you know, the Liberals have, have not been strong supporters of the energy sector or there, there's aspects that have been neglected. So from a centrist conservative perspective, where, where does the energy sector fit into all of that? There is no better place to be, Rob, than in Edmonton, and I'll give you guys in Calgary a heads up too, but there is no better place to be in Canada for the next decade than right here, right here. Look at what's going on with our hydrogen hub. Look at the artificial intelligence. Let's focus on the gifts that we have in the energy sector, Rob, that are going to make us world leaders. We have it all here. We have it all here. So we can be supporting the energy sector. We know that, you know, oil and gas investments are difficult, and I think One of the interesting things, Rob, is those of us who work in the capital markets where I have for the last 30 years, you can deny climate change all you want. The flow of capital, the flow of jobs, and the flow of opportunity is going to those companies that are doing whatever they can to mitigate carbon production, that are doing everything they can to meet ESG standards, and at the same time are transitioning into hydrogen, lithium, helium, all these things. Alberta is the leader. Edmonton is the leader. So... For a conservative to come out and say, I understand that the energy sector will continue to be a producer of energy and oil and gas for decades to come, 
but we are also going to be the leader in energy transition. Halfway between you and me today, there is a large development of a lithium development just outside of Red Deer. It's one of the largest ones in the world, a company called E3 Metals. This is a, this is a world changer, Rob. And this is the kind of thing that we've got to be highlighting as conservatives. Let's look at the advantages. Let's look at the challenges. And this is where the middle is. This is where jobs are created. This is where the future is. Well, as you mentioned, next week, the official launch of Center Ice Conservatives. Looking forward to further conversations here. We'll leave it there for now, though. Rick, thanks so much for making some time for us today. A pleasure, Rob. Thanks for having me. I appreciate it. Take care. Rick Peterson, uh, founder of Center Ice Conservatives, as mentioned, uh, they have their official launch next week. And so it's going to be interesting to see how how they impact the conversation happening in the Conservative Party right now. Rick, of course, ran for the Conservative leadership in uh, 2017 and 2020. Also been involved in other organizations, was uh, the uh, head of uh, the the organization Suits and Boots uh, a couple years back. So certainly got a history of uh, political activity and activism uh, in the Conservative Party and in the West. So it'll be interesting to see what kind of impact this has. It's quite a celebration at Windsor Castle in England today as the Queen of Canada marked her 96th birthday. Now, Queen Elizabeth II is also the Queen of England. And, you know, it's always been, uh, I, I think, an issue for a lot of Canadians that why do we share our head of state with other countries? Why is Canada's head of state living in a castle in England? Uh, should we continue that arrangement? And I suppose as we mark what must certainly, almost certainly be the end, nearing the end uh, of uh, this queen's reign, she marks her 96th birthday, 70 years on the throne, incredibly. You know, there's some renewed conversation around whether we want her son, her successor, to be our head of state. And whether we want to to continue to be a constitutional monarchy. Now, so much is wrapped up in the monarchy, in the crown. And, for example, we'll be speaking later on today with the Alberta Crown Attorneys Association. Like This is a part of, of our system of government at so many levels. But at the same time, I mean, other countries have reconsidered their ties to the monarchy. So how do Canadians feel about it? Well, on the day that uh, we mark the Queen's 96th birthday, uh, there's a new study out from the Angus Reid Institute on how Canadians feel about this question. Finds that uh, a majority of Canadians are more open to the idea of cutting ties with the monarchy. Still are quite fond of the Queen, mind you. Not so fond, however, of the idea of Charles becoming our next king. It's a pretty solid majority who say they oppose the idea of uh, Prince Charles becoming King Charles. Well, joining us to talk a bit more about uh, some of these findings and what it might mean for the conversation going forward about our system of government, very pleased to welcome the program here this afternoon, Dave Gorzinski, Research Director of the Angus Reid Institute. And uh, you can read much more on this survey and the survey results uh, at their website, which is angusreid.org. Dave, thanks for joining us here today. Welcome to the program. No problem. Thank you, Rob. Uh, so I, I guess the, the timing's kind of interesting, probably somewhat deliberate here as we mark, uh, you know, 70 years of Queen Elizabeth, or 96th birthday. You know, Canadians are, are having these conversations, aren't they? Yeah, we did want to plot this one out uh, and, and put it out during a, a relevant period. Uh, and, you know, it's becoming more and more relevant because uh, the Queen is, is really getting up there in age, you know, 96 years old. 
today and you know recently had that that bout with covid which had a lot of people concerned about her health um and she is really a really interesting swing point for this discussion um you know in, in a lot of of the countries where this these types of abolitionist movements have been happening um there's much more of a legacy of of colonialism there's a bit more of a power dynamic there when you're looking at something like jamaica or Barbados, um, whereas when you're looking at Canada, um, you know, there's there's a, a, a tradition of, of having the crown here that a lot of people are very comfortable with, um, and I think there's a, some obvious dynamics there that, that explain that. But she uh, is, is really the, the swing point, as I said, because when the Queen passes on, that's when Canadians really look at this situation and say, "Do we do we want to continue doing this? You know, we've we've had her as as our monarch for so long. Do we want to switch to to King Charles uh, and continue the arrangement at that point, or is it time to start talking about transitioning to something different, which is a little bit more modern and and doesn't reflect these kind of this outdated arrangement, which a lot of people think that it is. Uh, so I think that's going to be when the the pressure kind of heats up and that's what the data seems to suggest is that when uh, when the queen passes on that's that's when people are going to be ready to have this conversation it's interesting because i mean you know in, in a meaningful sense there's no difference um you know <clears throat> queen elizabeth king charles really nothing changes other than the person other than the name but you know the person does mean a lot in terms of how canadians view this it seems because there's there's great admiration here for for queen elizabeth ii and Canadians are not so fond of of her eldest son here, uh, you know, Prince Charles. So that's going to impact how Canadians view all of this. Yeah, because the arrangement is is so symbolic. I think that the figurehead just has such an uh, kind of an, an uh, out outsized uh, impact on on how people feel. So if you ask the question of um, simple favorability, do you do you like or dislike this person? The Queen outpaces Prince Charles more than two to one. You've got a 63% favorability rating for her, whereas Prince Charles just 29%, um, although well ahead of Prince Andrew at just 13%. He's had some well-documented issues uh, in recent years. Uh, and then when you ask that same question of, okay, so do you want to maintain a monarchy as long as uh, the Queen lives? Uh a full majority, still just 55%, but a full majority say that they're they're okay with that. But then when you ask them about <clears throat> continuing on after that, then it drops to uh, about one in three. So you lose almost half of those uh, monarchist supporters when when the queen passes away. So you would have to make some uh, some uh, considerable changes. You know, the, these these changes have to be made through the constitution, which is always a big sticking point with people who say it's just not worth it to go through uh, all of the you know, the bureaucracy and the, the debates that we would have to do to, to actually make this change. But it is something where Canadians who want to see that change, 90% of them say, yeah, open up the Constitution, do what it, do what it takes, um, and we'll, we'll figure out how to, how to have, uh, you know, a new governor general uh, that doesn't report to the Crown. We'll, we'll figure out these arrangements um, when the time comes. But it is something that people are open to. Well, and that's an interesting point here because it's not as though Canadians are demanding, you know, we, we become a republic tomorrow. Um, but at the same time, you know, there's, there seems to be an appetite for the conversation about it happening at some point. So, so when might that be? 
Well, yeah, and I, and I think that depending on who you're talking to, there are certain benefits to to pursuing the arrangement. You know, this is very popular in Quebec for obvious reasons. Um, it's also quite popular among Indigenous Canadians. Um, for them, uh, I, th- I think those communities, it's an opportunity to kind of reframe what Canada is and take a chance uh, to, to look at what we've been for um you know, the last 150 years and then what we will be going forward. Um, so I think it is, you know, we're always, we're having conversations about the country's history and, and what to do going forward and how to reconcile um, historical events. And I think that this is an opportunity for a lot of people, depending on where your perspective is. Um, we didn't ask, uh, you know, when is the right time? to transition um but you really can look at the uh the difference between the uh, the support for queen elizabeth uh and support for anybody else preceding her and then when you ask the the question more broadly of just should we maintain a uh, a monarchy uh for years to come uh, only 26% of canadians like that idea and twice as many say no we we've got to figure this out at some point we can't do this for coming generations. So, mm-hmm. um, you know, there hasn't been a lot of pickup uh, on this in terms of, you know, political uh, individuals saying this is something that we have to do. I, I think it's more of a background conversation and um, it's not something that generates a really strong movement in Canada. But it is interesting when you when you get people to take a second and, and voice their opinions that you do get this pushback and say, you know, maybe it is time to have Canada look a bit different. And it's interesting because, you know, maybe if Canadians are not necessarily in a rush to do this, um, you know, you see some interesting results when you ask about other countries that have, most recently Barbados, Jamaica, and you ask Canadians, you know, do you think those countries made the right decisions? Those numbers are even higher. Yeah, and, and the the portion of, of Canadians who push back is very small. I think that's what's most interesting there is that... Um, we mentioned Barbados, and we talked about how Jamaica has has made it known that they're going to be pursuing this. Um, interestingly, there have been discussions in Australia about moving this way as well. Um, and when you ask about other countries doing it, just eight percent of Canadians say that's the wrong decision. They should they should maintain their their tradition. Fifty eight percent say that it's the right call, and then one in three just say they're not really sure. They don't really feel comfortable speaking for those other countries, but really not a lot of pushback at all uh, on this movement. So I think that that's why it is, it does appear to be gaining steam. Uh, and a lot of countries that are in the Commonwealth are reassessing this. And, and the, the royal family has been pretty open to this, you know, attending the ceremony in Barbados um, as they transition to a, a new form of government. And uh, they've, they've, also recognize that in Jamaica and they're amenable to uh, countries making this this change. So um, I think there are some people in Britain who uh, freak out a little bit when they see the the UK um, banner kind of waning in influence a little bit. Yeah. Uh, but largely, I think people are are aware that this is a, a period of history that we're moving past, and uh, for a lot of countries, it's a, it's a a painful history, just that relationship and how their relationship with with the British Crown and with the UK government more broadly um, has been handled over that period of time. Very interesting. Well, much more, uh, as mentioned, AngusReed.org. Dave, thanks so much for joining us here today. Appreciate it.
No problem. Take care. You as well. Dave Korzynski, Research Director of the Angus Reid Institute, angusreid.org. So Canadians, uh, you know, have a real fondness uh, for Queen Elizabeth. In fact, many Canadians say they will be quite sad uh, when she passes. Uh, the opinion of uh, Prince Charles is much lower. And for that matter, Prince Andrew is, is even lower. Now, Prince Andrew is not, not as relevant in, in the, you know, the Canadian context here in terms of who would be our head of state. But Prince Charles, obviously, is, is the successor to Queen Elizabeth. So Canadians don't like the idea of King Charles. While 55% of Canadians are supportive of remaining a constitutional monarchy under Queen Elizabeth, this drops to 34% when asked about the same arrangement under King Charles. Now, Prince William is someone who's viewed favorably by Canadians. In fact, his numbers look almost as, as good as Queen Elizabeth's numbers. I mean, it's possible that we could just skip over Prince Charles and, and go to Prince William. In fact, it's even theoretically possible that Canada could do that even if the UK didn't. But that really gets into the constitutional weeds in terms of, uh, in terms of that kind of an arrangement. Anyway, uh, for now, though, we, um, we mark the Queen's 96th birthday, 70 years uh, on the throne, and um, still after all these years, deeply appreciated by a great many Canadians. All right, welcome back. Rob Breckenridge with you. Plenty more still to get to here this afternoon. There's an interesting new study today from the Fraser Institute looking at the impact of government policies on workforce participation amongst older Canadians. And maybe there's a, a central question we need to figure out. Does the government, should the government care either way when it comes to workforce participation amongst older Canadians? Should the government be almost encouraging Canadians to retire to make room for younger workers or... You know, given a lot of the labor shortages we're dealing with right now, should the government find ways of at least supporting Canadians who want to stay in the workforce? So these are questions we can sort out. But basically, the reality at the moment, as this report argues, is that there are a lot of barriers that are in place for older Canadians who want to stay in the workforce. Well, joining us to talk more about this uh, latest paper, very pleased to welcome to the program here this afternoon, Jason Clemens, Executive Vice President at the Fraser Institute, FraserInstitute.org. Uh, to read more, Jason, thanks for being with us here. Welcome to the program. My pleasure. Thank you. I mean, first of all, is this report or should we be agnostic on the question of, of uh, you know, workforce participation at those what we would consider to be retirement ages? And, and should the government be agnostic? Yeah, I, I think it's a great question. I mean, I, I think we want to differentiate between government policies that encourage right. older Canadians to remain active versus policies that actually discourage them. And so if, if we had a system that was neutral, I think it'd be l much less of an issue. Um, but it's not that we have a system that encourages them or that's neutral. We actually have policy after policy that, in, that discourages older workers from remaining active. And so at a time when uh, we are clearly seeing labor shortages and at a time when not only the federal government, but the, or, uh, the OECD or the Organization for Economic Cooperation and Development, the IMF, uh, a number of private organizations, including uh, the Fraser Institute, have all said Canada has a productivity problem. Mm -hmm. And one of the ways that we can improve our productivity 
uh, or at the very least not to deteriorate, is to keep older workers in the labor force because, by and large, they usually, in most positions, have a higher level of productivity relative to newer workers simply as a function of having more experience. Uh, and so I, I think there is just reason after reason to um, at least advance an agenda of having a neutral system, if not actually having some policies that can encourage and help older workers to remain active in the labor force. Right. And, and you know, on that point, I guess it would come down to respecting the choice. And, and for those who want to stay in the workforce, who choose to, at least removing these barriers. So let, let's look at that side of it then. What, what are some of the barriers that exist or some of the disincentives that exist for older workers who want to keep working? Sure. So I, I think one of the biggest ones, and there's, there's a number of aspects to it, but one of the biggest ones is the effective tax rate that older workers are going to uh, face. And that's a function, for example, of um, uh, all of the federal programs that are related to providing income support have not had the normal age of retirement increased from 65, even though we've life expectancy has increased considerably. Uh, we continue to have a fairly low age by which you have to convert private savings into what's called a RIF, where you have to take out money. Mm-hmm. Even if you don't need the money, you have to take it out, and that is now taxable income. Uh, we have clawbacks on federal programs, which adds another tax problem. So in many ways, they're all many of these problems are connected to what rewards the seniors get uh, or older workers get if they remain active. And, and I mean, just for your listeners, I mean, it's, it's pretty common sense. If you're facing a tax rate of 50 or 60 or even 70 percent, it creates a pretty strong barrier to you being interested in remaining active in the labor force when, let's be honest, you could you could go golf, you could go volunteer, you yeah. could do other leisure activities. So even just normalizing those tax rates to what you would experience if you were just 40 or 50 years old, I think would go a long way to removing the barriers that seniors face. It's interesting. When we look at benefit programs like CPP or OAS or GIS, do we think of those as retirement benefits or do we think of them as seniors' benefits? Because if it's the former, maybe it makes sense if for someone who is still working would, would see those clawbacks or, or reductions. But how do we view those in, in that context? Yeah, so I think this is a really important question because under the previous federal government, there was a plan to increase what's called the normal age of retirement to uh, 67, which, quite frankly, to move from 65 to 67, uh, I think, was just a modest reform. But it was nonetheless a reform, um, which then would have allowed further changes in terms of how far could you or how long, pardon me, could you defer the receipt uh, of some programs like old age security or GIS? Those were important reforms. Unfortunately, the the current government, as soon as they came in, this was one of the first things they did, which was cancel those reforms. Um, And Canada is actually an outlier in the OECD uh, or the group of industrialized countries in terms of not increasing the age of eligibility. And, And that's an important differentiation, which is we're not talking about changing people's retirement age. If they still want to retire at 60 or 62 or 65, they can. The question is, what is the normal age whereby you would start to get government-provided benefits? And that is one of the barriers um, that, that, again, we we just have not adjusted those ages. 
as we've seen increases in life expectancy. Um, and so getting back to the main question you, you've posed, which again is an important one when we differentiate between a seniors program and a retirement program, it is very much, those programs are very much designed to stabilize income when people are moving into retirement. It's one of the reasons you can get benefits before age 65. Mm-hmm. But when we look as well, and you mentioned, I mean, you know, the bigger questions of our labor force, our productivity, Canada's aging population, does it make sense to have government policy that, that's skewed toward encouraging retirement or encouraging people to exit the workforce? And do we need to think about, you know, the broader economic impact of all of this moving forward? Yeah, so it's a great question. So the OECD just had a report, and and interestingly, the federal government in its most recent budget actually acknowledged the report. Um, It looked at 17 industrialized countries and the prospects for economic growth over the next 40 years, and Canada ranked last. Um, I mean, it's just a dismal report. If if your listeners want to get depressed about the prospects for the Canadian economy, that's probably the report to read. One of the things they outlined in the report is that Canada does a poor job of encouraging older workers or even allowing older workers to remain active in the labor force. And so at the very least, there is a very strong argument that we should have a neutral system neither discouraging nor encouraging. I I frankly think there's actually a pretty strong argument that we should have proactive policies that encourage and help older workers uh, remain active in the labor force. Very interesting. Much more of this report's online at FraserInstitute.org. Jason, thanks so much for joining us here today. Appreciate it. My pleasure. Thank you. All the best. Uh, Jason Clemens, Executive Vice President of the Fraser Institute, FraserInstitute.org. Uh, this latest piece, Barriers to the Labor Force Participation of Older Workers in Canada. And at least just having more of a, a neutral policy approach that respects the choice either way. You want to retire? Okay, well, here's how, how this can help. You want to keep working? Well, here's how we can help facilitate that. So they say there, there's a lot of barriers to staying in the workforce once you get to a certain age. And obviously the reasons why people do vary. I mean, you know, some people do it out of economic necessity. I mean, others do it just because, you know, they like what they do or they want to stay active. You know, maybe some have retired and they realized, you know, that that they do want to still have a foot in the workforce, even just to have a part-time job, just to stay active and, you know, meet people, etc. So the, the reasons vary, but, you know, maybe there is a need for it. Thanks for downloading and listening to the podcast. Don't forget to subscribe, rate, and review for free at Apple Podcasts, Google Play, or wherever you find your podcast. You can also find me on Twitter at Rob Breckenridge. You can email me, Rob at 770CHQR.com. Talk to you next time. Afternoons with Rob Breckenridge, starting at 1230 on News Talk 770 Calgary.